on Saturday, April 25th, 2009, at approximately 12.25 in the afternoon, police began receiving frantic reports of multiple gunshots being fired at a local community theater in Athens, Georgia. George Zinkin, a 57-year-old marketing professor from the University of Georgia, had shot his wife and two men in front of a crowd of people and then fled the scene in his red jeep and completely vanished. Authorities launched an international manhunt, fearing George had plans to flee the country, placing him on the America's most wanted list. What had caused George Zinkin to commit such a brutal and sudden attack in broad daylight on his wife and two others? A father, a university professor, a co-author, a man with a doctorate and a bachelor's degree, and no history of violence. Please join me as we explore further into the complex story of George Sankin. At about 11 a.m. on April 25th, George Zinkin pulled up to the Grady Avenue local theater with his two young children. As they walked up to the theater, his 8-year-old son and 10-year-old daughter reportedly ran to their mother, Mary Bruce, who was already in attendance and waiting for her children's arrival. Her son appeared upset and on the verge of tears. Mary took the children into the theater where food was being served and their father remained outside. Zinkin's wife, a 47-year-old family law attorney, had been serving as the president of the local theater group and occasionally acted on stage. Sources say that before George left the picnic with his two kids, he got into a heated argument with his wife. And in the midst of the quarrel, he hastily ushered his children to wait in his jeep. When he returned to confront his wife, he had a backpack in hand. No one could have imagined what George was about to do next. He proceeded to remove two handguns from the backpack he was carrying, and then he started to open fire. The first shot hit Thomas Tanner, a local theater group member, point blank, several times in the back of the head. Zinkin then shot the theater set designer, Ben Teague, who police said had earlier tried to calm things down between George and his wife while they were arguing. After running out of bullets, George then reloaded his pistol and shot his wife as she stood just outside the theater's entrance doors. Initially, shocked witnesses thought it was a dramatic sketch that was being acted out for the picnic's attendees. One witness said, since we're involved in theater, it almost seemed like a theatrical stunt of some sort. So initially, people really didn't react in the way you would expect them to react to a violent act like that. 
Another witness described George as detached and businesslike as he fired the guns at the helpless victims. Immediately after the shooting, George raced off in his Jeep, dropping his two young children at a neighbor's home, indicating that he needed a favor. Neighbor Bob Covington is quoted saying, he asked me if I could keep the kids for about an hour and then said it was some type of emergency. Before Covington could find out what the emergency was, George took off. So Bob asked Zinkin's eight-year-old daughter what was going on, but all that she could tell them was it had something to do with firecrackers. Soon authorities were able to inform the neighbor with the devastating truth behind Zinkin's emergency and that shortly before arriving at Covington's home, George, armed with two handguns, had murdered three people in a public place, and then fled, triggering an international manhunt. Those who knew George expressed surprise and dismay at his sudden rampage, giving the impression that he was friendly, but withdrawn, perhaps a bit scattered at times, but he must have been a man who just snapped. Neighbors even recalled seeing George outside playing soccer with his children on the front lawn. One neighbor in particular described Mr. Zinkin as disarmingly quiet. He was the kind of strange character that did not talk, she said, but I never thought he would do something like this. A former colleague commented, like most of my colleagues, I'm absolutely flabbergasted by this. Two pistols in the Wild West thing? Extremely bizarre. There was no inkling whatsoever that he was capable of this kind of violence. If you want to paint him like that, then go ahead. But it would be totally inaccurate. Athens Clark Police FBI GBI agents Georgia State Patrol Troopers UGA Police and the U.S. Marshal Service all joined forces in a desperate attempt to apprehend George before he harmed anyone else. Investigators began monitoring airports in case Zinken tried to flee to Amsterdam, where he owned a home and taught part-time in the summer at a university. Apparently George had booked an upcoming flight to Amsterdam, but the professor never showed up to the airport. Authorities also reached out to law enforcement agencies in Austin, Texas, where George had an ex-wife and two other children. So, who really was George Zinkin III? A second home in Amsterdam? Another family in Texas? Where did George's story really begin, and who was he really? Police hadn't previously released a motive for the three murders, but said that George and his wife were having some marital difficulties for some time. Apparently, the couple had received marriage counseling, and Marie Bruce had removed her name from the joint bank account just several months prior. A voice recorder was found in Zinkin's office. It had been used for what seemed to be a covert attempt to record a conversation between himself and Marie. The conversation was concerning Marie having an affair with Thomas Tanner, the first victim of the fatal shooting. Thomas Tanner was a 40-year-old Clemens University economist who taught government and public affairs. Tanner also acted at the Town and Gowns Community Theater with Marie and was playing Dr. Watson in the group's performance of Sherlock Holmes at the time of the shooting. Documents found on George's office computer indicated that he knew about his wife's affair. 
Zinkin's assistant reported that the professor had been visiting divorce-related websites. At the same time, Mary Bruce appeared to also be planning to tell George that she wanted a divorce, but only after he returned from a scheduled trip to Amsterdam. Hearing all this, one could assume that all it took for the seemingly normal and respectable guy to snap was the thought of his wife having an affair. But was George Zinkin really all that he appeared to be? Was he indeed just a normal, respectable guy that lost it? Or was there more to him than most people knew? As I dug further into George's past and read through interviews with former colleagues, students, and acquaintances, it appeared there was a whole other side to George. Or should I say, sides. A close friend of his wife was one of the people who had seen another side of George. She was quoted saying, We've known him for a long time. He was trash. He spoke crude and nasty. There are people who never understood why she dated him. The friend also stated that for several years the couple had fought horribly in front of their two young children. Crude and nasty? Why had Marie's friend come to that conclusion? What else was going on with George that people didn't know about? I decided to try and go back as far as I could into George's history as I could find. I discovered his full name was George Martin Zinkin III. And he was born on February 17, 1952. Before being known as George, he was referred to as Martin. He was apparently a smart and likable kid from the boys' Latin school in Maryland. And that smart, likable kid eventually grew up to become a polished and respected professor, spending nearly six decades cultivating a knowledge of marketing into a steady career. He began teaching at the University of Houston in 1994 and while living in Texas, he was married to another woman and had two children. This was the first time I had even heard that he had been previously married and had children. What I discovered next was equally surprising. The University of Houston had requested George voluntarily step down from his position due to allegations of extreme and consistent sexual harassment on colleagues and students. Shockingly, Zinkin was able to avoid any disciplinary action because he had made an agreement with the university that he would simply leave, and in return, Houston University wouldn't do anything to block his chances of getting another position elsewhere. He then left Texas and moved to Georgia, where he accepted a position as a department head at the University of Georgia. I couldn't find anything more about his previous wife or the two children that he seemed to no longer have any contact with. Only that public records show that in 1996, he divorced Olydia Stoyden in Harris County, Texas, two years after he began teaching at UGA. Unfortunately, George's indiscretions seemed to follow him. A professor who had picked up Zinkin at the airport when he first arrived in Georgia said that he came on to her immediately. 
he asked her out for lunch and told her he wanted to read her some poetry. Because apparently George didn't use the typical pickup lines to entice women. Instead, he was known for his use of poetry to get in close with them. Some of Zinkin's students at the university believed that he was having an affair with one of the female students and said he behaved inappropriate with others. It has also been quoted that Zinkin had a history of showing up drunk or high to meetings and other events, and he would make no attempt to hide his condition. Students recall him wearing flip-flops and shorts to class, thinking it was strange for a business professor to be dressed in such a casual way. Students also joked about the one long pinky fingernail he had, joking he must be a cocaine user. Also, while teaching at the university, he seemed to have a long-standing feud with a colleague named Barbara Carroll. For more than a decade, Zinkin and Carroll traded accusations detailing in more than 1,600 pages of documents released by the university. In 1996, one document from Barbara stated, I am scared of Dr. Zinkin. Keep him away from me. Had Barbara perceived a side of George Zinkin that no one else had? In January of 2009, George's wife had apparently started a brief affair of her own with Thomas Tanner. Whether she had known all along about George's indiscretions is unclear. What is clear, though, is that she was unhappy with her marriage and was planning to leave him. Around that same time, George was reported behaving on edge. He started sleeping underneath his desk at school, and his assistant thought he was spending nights in his office. He also had lost a drastic amount of weight. He was reported to be spending time with a former UGA student who denied any romantic involvement, just that they were friends and had similar interests. Remarkably, she had no idea that Zinkin was married until they had dinner together one night at her home, and he confided with her that he was getting a divorce. George's assistant stated that it was also around this time that he enlisted her help in setting up multiple social networking and financial accounts for him. As if he was living a double life or trying to hide something. It all came to a head on the afternoon of April 25th, 2009. Sources believe that George Zinkin had arrived at the town and gown picnic to confront his wife about her affair. The exact words exchanged between the couple is unknown, only that Ben Teague, another member of the community theater group, attempted to intervene and break up the argument, only to be gunned down moments later. After fleeing the scene, a SWAT team was later seen swarming Zinkin's suburb at Bob Covington's home, where George had dropped off his kids earlier. Police had asked his daughter, who had babysat for the Zinkins, to draw a floor plan of the Zinkin home. Police also used the neighbor's house to stake out the fugitive's home. They finally entered and searched his two-story colonial house, but there was no sign of George. They even searched his office at the university and his wife's office, but George was nowhere to be found. 
authorities then launched an international manhunt, fearing that he might flee to Amsterdam. But a week after the frantic search for George was launched, his jeep was finally found crashed in a ravine in a local wooded area not far from his home. But he wasn't in it. Despite all the interviews and profiling, no one knew whether Zinkin was dead or alive in Georgia or hundreds of miles away. Authorities tried tracking Zinkin's cell phone, but couldn't because it had been turned off. They fielded tips across the country, only leading to dead ends. Helicopters hovered overhead where his jeep had been found. Dogs searched the woods. Hundreds of officers scoured over 200 acres in search of any sign of George. Finally, on May 9th, almost two weeks after George had murdered three people, cadaver dogs finally found his dead body. Approximately one mile from where the Jeep had been discovered, his hand-dug grave was so well hidden a hiker could have easily walked right by it without even noticing it. Police say George Zinkin spent his final moments digging a 15 to 18 inch deep hole. He then laid down inside it and pulled the door of an appliance that he had scavenged from a junk pile along with tree branches and debris all over his body, completely concealing himself. George Zinkin laid there in the dirt along with his thoughts. The undeniable truth of knowing that he had ripped away the life of his children's mother and stolen the lives of two others. Laying there in the cold, dark, damp, hand-dug grave. George took out his revolver, placed it in his mouth, and fired. Police photographs show that beside him in the grave was the gun that he had used to kill himself and the other pistol he had used to murder his wife and the two men along with the shovel that he'd used to dig the grave. The medical examiner estimated he must have been dead between 5 to 14 days. Why had George Zinkin gone to such great lengths to conceal his body? It would appear by his efforts he had hoped never to be found. But why? Found in the abandoned red jeep was Zinkin's wallet containing $51, his passport, a laptop, a Blackberry, over $1,000 in cash shoved into the pockets of a duffel bag, six spent shell casings from a 38 caliber revolver, documents containing information on Thomas Tanner and a map to his colleague's home Barbara Carroll, the colleague who he had been disputing with for years. Barbara later stated 
I do not believe that Zinkin had a map to my house for any reason other than he planned to kill me. Zinkin's body was claimed a week after it was discovered by his son from the previous marriage. Just one day before it was scheduled for burial in a pauper's grave by the Athens-Clark County Coroner's Office. Such a grave is typically reserved for unidentified bodies, unclaimed bodies, or people without family members. It is unclear why the family had taken so long to claim the body of the professor. During my research, I found one very interesting yet disturbing poem that Zinkin wrote that may have hauntingly foreshadowed his final moments, titled Voluntary Disposal. And it reads, Son, get the shovel. There's a dead rat stinking in the backyard. Why do we have to do it now, Dad? It was out there yesterday. It'll be out there tomorrow. Let's go now. Turn off the TV. It's raining, Dad, and the rat is shrinking. He used to be more of a rat. More of a rat? Tomorrow, Dad. Tomorrow. The dogs narrowed in on it. A person who's not accustomed to the woods would, ne would never have found the body. If it had been there for a period of time, uh, then if, uh, with rain and selling, you would not be able to find the body. The body was was beneath the earth. Oh, wait. So buried? The body was beneath the earth. That's why I'll, I'll stay. We'll be get a better description. Do you believe the, the person whose body you found did that burying? As a person who grew up in the woods and being a little country myself, yes. How did this person die? That will be determined. We'll release that once the uh, medical examiner tells us. We hope to give you that before the end of the day. Can you tell anything we, about the body, male, female? How long the, it's it's a male, white male. And the, the body in general fit, uh, fits the description. We have some uh, decomposition. But in general, the body fits the description of the individual that we're looking for. Although police said they don't know a motive for the killings, Zinkhan and his wife apparently got into an argument outside the theater. Police believe he walked away briefly before returning with two handguns. I'm sad for those people and I'm sad for their families. I hope everybody's praying for them. So I've lived here for 20 years and this is the first case I've ever heard of, of anything happening like this. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au Slash G E.
the mind Madness, I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run